Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Imagine a dear friend has sent a messenger asking you to travel 40 or so miles to meet with them. You're likely traveling on foot. You going? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled The Poured Out Life, which covers Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Thank you, Tom. Let's read together this prayer of illumination. O God, who gives generously to those who ask, we ask that you would give us understanding that we may keep your word 
Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and instead give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series called Radical Renewal where we're working our way through the book of Acts. You may also know that this is our third year in this series, and no, not consecutively. If you're new to us, you're like, my goodness, they've been in the book of Acts for three years. That is a long sermon series. No, we did part one two years ago, made it through about chapter eight, uh, then, uh, then did part two last year, and uh, made it through chapter 18, and then now we're doing part three. And uh, we'll take a break next week, actually. I mentioned earlier Dr. Brian Chappell. Uh, he is, again, the stated clerk of our denomination. He'll be preaching here next week. He and his wife uh, worship here uh, when they're able to and uh, live here nearby as they serve at the headquarters of our denomination in Lawrenceville. But he'll be, um, he'll be preaching from Romans 12 next week, and then we'll jump back into the series week after that. Um, but in this series, we have been looking at all the various events in the books, book of Acts and the ways in which we can begin to see and identify and then begin, hopefully in our context today, apply even what does it look like to be renewed as the church of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we think about what we just heard read to us from this incredibly significant passage in Acts chapter 20, I want to start with a question. The question is simply this. When you get to the end of your life, do you want to have lived a poured out life or a life that was puffed up? A puffed up is my language of just saying a life that is centered ultimately or was centered ultimately on self. An incredibly uh, me-centered view of life. When you observe the world around us, when you observe the way in which we are naturally bent towards doing life, the way that we're pre-wired to do life because of our sin nature that we're born with, the way in which we operate is to be a very selfish people. This is not news to us. We know this. And it doesn't take long, and if you don't have a Christian worldview or you don't agree with the Bible, it doesn't take long to even see that evidenced in, in and throughout history, that we're a people about self-preservation. We are a people about self-protection. We are a people about uh, honoring self, uplifting self, making our name great. The history books tend to remember those who have endeavored in such ways. Those who have sought to make a great name for themselves, often at the expense of others. And so we might call this the puffed up life. The life that says I'm gonna do and chase and aim for the various endeavors that ultimately puff me up, that make me look great, and that make me infamous or famous or whatever we want to put in there. What the scriptures show us time and again, though, is that we are not to live that life, but we are actually to live the poured out life, to pour ourselves out on uh, the altar, as it were, of, of, of living sacrifices, that we're constantly putting ourselves in that place of dying to self. And it's not just death to self on a daily basis for the sake of pain and sorrow and 
you know, making ourselves feel good about something that's sacrificial in nature, because the world can do that, for sure. We can, we can actually begin to uh, praise and, and say that things are worthy and honor when we sacrifice for them. That's not unique to just Christians, but to what end? Why do we sacrifice? Why are we dying to self? Why are we, Romans 12, as we'll hear next week, why are we living sacrifices? It's not, ultimately, here's the goal. It's not for the praise and honor and glory of me or any of us or anything, but to the praise and the honor and the glory of God. All of life is pushing us towards what, what the world says is precious, what the world says is significant, what the world says is of most and greatest priority. But the call upon every Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, the call upon every Christian is to give our lives away in service to the Lord in a way that brings him glory. Every Christian in this chapter, in chapter 20, we have Paul engaging again with the Ephesians. Last week, as we were in chapter 19, we studied and thought about how Paul, what, did, what happened when, we, when he was in Ephesus and the riot that came from it and all the people that were pushing back on the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And, but we also talked about how he stayed for quite a while. Sometimes he would travel on his missionary journeys and he would only just be a brief quick stay because everything was met with such opposition. There was no fruit. There was nothing taking root. But other times, two examples of this would be the city of Corinth and the city of Ephesus, where it was met with great fruit, great response, such that Paul stayed for quite a while. We learn from this passage today that he stayed in Ephesus for three years. And remember, he said last week in the text that we looked at, he said that he stayed because there was such an open door that God had opened for effective ministry and for great many adversaries. So he knew that he was going to be met with opposition, but he stayed because he was seeing the great fruit that was happening in Ephesus. The beginning of this chapter that we didn't read today of chapter 20, Paul sets sail from Ephesus and he begins to visit many of the places that he had gone on his first missionary journey, revisiting believers there, strengthening the churches there, gathering donations to take back to Jerusalem to give to the needy and to the church there centered out of Jerusalem. And his aim and his desire is to get back to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And he's on a short time frame. He's got to move. He's got to go there quick. And so he's sailing back around there near Ephesus, but he doesn't stop at Ephesus because he's trying to get to Jerusalem. But at the next stop, he had sent word by one of the messengers. He said, look, I can't not say goodbye to these people that I love so dearly. And so when they got to the next stop, he had sent for the Ephesian church, the rulers and the overseers, the elders, and many of the members of that church, he had sent for them to come and meet him. And when they got there, Paul had this unique opportunity that we don't often get in life. This unique opportunity of knowing this is the last time I will see these people. What do I want to say to them? What is it that I want to communicate to them? What's my farewell speech? What do I want them to remember? And what do I want them to be about? Maybe that's the way to frame it for us even as we think about the reality that all of us sound somber and low-key and all that, but it's the truth. We're all gonna die. What do we want the tone and the tenor of our funeral to be? What do we want people to remember us for? But it's not about us, ultimately, like we said. 
What do we want them to be about because of our lives? That's the question. What, if, what would change about the way we even plan funerals if that were the question? If the question wasn't, how do I want people to remember me? But what do I want to be true of your lives because of my life? What's different about you because we did life together? A, a, a bit of a shift on how we even typically want to be remembered and what we typically press into. I'm calling this sermon The Poured Out Life because what we see in this text is we see Paul remembering, rehearsing, and, and challenging the Ephesians with this is how I lived among you. This is what I did. And he's gonna say this in essence. He's gonna say, I poured out my life into yours. I poured out my life into yours. I'm gonna give you 12, yes, I said it, 12 things I want you to observe in this text today. Some of you just turned to your wives and said, cancel the lunch reservations for Mother's Day. We're gonna be here a while. No, we're gonna move through these quickly. Um, but 12 things I want us to observe in this passage about this, about what is a Christ-exalting, poured-out life from what we see from Paul here and what he did with the Ephesians. So here's the first one. All of these coming straight from the text that we read just a moment ago. The Christ-exalting, poured-out life is first life-on-life life missional discipleship. Some of you smile who've been at Perimeter. You know that's our language. That's not Paul's language. That phrase is not in the text. That's our language, life-on-life life missional discipleship. But I want you to notice how he starts in what he says to the Ephesians. They've gathered together. Look at verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, now watch this phrase that he opens with, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You yourselves know. Now, this is not an arrogant statement. This is not a, hey, look, you know, look at me statement. It's simply, I don't even really have to rehash everything that we've talked about over the last three years. I don't have to because you've seen me. You've walked with me. We've done life together. You've heard me teach, yes. You've heard me sit in Tyrannus's chamber there, the lecture hall, where he would teach every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. You've heard that, yes, but I have done life with you. I have lived among you. And one of the, one of the greatest values that we have here in this church, and we certainly don't do this perfectly by any means, but we want to make disciples. And we want to make disciples through this process that we call, from God's word, that we sum up as saying life-on-life life, missional discipleship. Not life on curriculum, not life on Bible study, although it's incredibly important. We'll talk about that in a moment. But life on life, we are in the trenches together. We are serving together. We are loving each other and our families together. We are sharing life together such that by the end of our lives or by the time that we know I will never see you again on this side of heaven, I can say to you, like Paul said to the Ephesians, you yourself know, you know how I've lived among you. And it speaks for itself. You know what I'm about. You know who I am. You know what's precious to me. You know what I care about most. And you know, you know that I have poured myself out into your life. It's life on life, missional 
discipleship. We, we do these groups here that we call journey groups or sometimes we just call them discipleship groups. We'd love for you to be a part of one where we, that's our aim of every time we do one of these groups is to be in a small group where life is shared. Life on life is happening around the context of the scriptures with the application of the gospel and the truth of God, God's word in our lives. But we're sharing life with one another. You got a couple of months to pray and consider if you want to be a part of those, if you haven't already. They'll open up again in August. We'd love for you to be a part of those groups. But watch what he says next. He does give a, a bit of an explanation of how he's lived with them. He says, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details, you know, but here's a couple of things I want to highlight. He says this. He says, serving, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Second thing, take note of, the Christ-exalting poured out life is marked with humility. Don't miss this too, that he said serving the Lord, not serving you, although he was in practicality serving them. But he said, my service to you, my pouring my life out for you, my being a living sacrifice for you is ultimately, what is it? It is service to the Lord. It's all about him. It's not for the name of Paul. It's not for the name of the Ephesian church. It's for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his service. Serving the Lord with humility. Now, I've talked about this a lot. I won't belabor it, but I do think there, there is a bit of an issue that we have going on in the American church with humility. When I look across the landscape of the American church, I see us struggling with this, and it's nothing new to this generation or this time. There's nothing unique about that. The church is always, because we're people and we're sinful and we struggle with our sin nature, all root, as C.S. Lewis said, he argued that the root of sin is pride. So this is nothing new, but we struggle with this. And so what is humility? If we're gonna be about humility, if we're gonna be marked with humility, as Christ-exalting poured out people, then what is it? And I would propose to you that it's this, that humility is not necessarily, primarily, a character trait to behold or to have, but it's actually a posture to take on a daily basis. And you go, okay, well, that makes sense, but let me tell you what that posture is. The posture is daily, daily, getting ourselves in the presence of God. Here's why. What we see in the Bible time and time again is that when people are in the presence of God, pride dies. You cannot be prideful in the presence of God. It just can't happen. When we are with God, when we are communing with him, we are by nature a humble people. And so with no judgment in mind, but just, just straight truth, we can deductively logic that if you have someone who is prideful, then we can say that's someone who's not spending much time in the presence of God. If we have a church that's prideful, then we have a church that is not spending much time in the presence of God because when we get in the presence of God, humility happens and pride dies. So Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility. But then he says this. He says, I serve the Lord in all humility with tears and with trials. So the third thing to notice is this. He's in the trenches. A Christ-exalting, poured-out life is in the trenches. 
It's in the nitty gritty. It's in the dirt. It's a, it's a life in Christ that's not afraid to move into the dirty spaces of other people's lives, whether that be physically and meeting their needs or even spiritually going to those deep places that we don't typically want others to go. Of course, you need to be invited in. We don't, we don't just barge our way into people's hearts in that way, but we do life with people such that they allow us to get into the trenches with them. That we are invited into those spaces. That what used to be closed off dark closets of our heart that we would never open to anyone, we actually begin to open to brothers and sisters in Christ, or at least one brother or one sister in Christ, because we go, I know you. I've done life with you. I trust you. I know what you're about. You're humble. You're in the trenches with me, and I need help here. Would you come in? Would you sit with me? I want to be honest with you so that together we can run to Jesus, the only one who brings cleansing. The very one who came to cleanse the dirtiest, darkest, deepest crevices of our hearts. Let's go to him together. Let's encourage one another in that direction. Physically, though, even, that we would be a people that aren't afraid to be inconvenienced with the needs of others. That we would actually even look for the ways to be inconvenienced by others because we are serving the Lord with such humility. So Christ exalting poured out life is life on life missional discipleship. It's marked with humility. It's in the trenches. But fourthly, it's courageous. It's courageous in declaring and teaching and testifying. Listen to how he says it here. As he's recalling to the Ephesians how he lived, verse 20, he said, I did not shrink. I did not shrink back. I did not withhold. I was courageous. In declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. I did it in private. I did it one-on-one. I also did it corporately, together, and testifying to everybody, both Jew and Greek. That means every person who would listen, testifying to what? To repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is helping the Ephesians remember. He's saying, look, I was courageous among you. You saw it. I declared the goodness of God, the, the joy of knowing Jesus. I taught you deeply. I sat with you in the scriptures and I did not stop testifying, giving account in my own life of how repentance in God and faith in Jesus is our only hope. That if you want to experience what God ultimately has for us, it must start there. Repentance in God and faith in Jesus. And so who are we as a, as a Christ-exalting, poured-out people? We are a people who are courageous in that way, who don't shrink back from proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in all situations and in all places, with all people. We do it with love. We do it with consideration. We do it with gentleness, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter. But we do it. We proclaim, we declare, we teach, we testify to the goodness of God in Christ. Watch what he says next. He says, and now behold, verse 22, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Constrained by the Spirit, the Christ-exalting poured out life 
is bound by the Spirit, and I'll go ahead and give you the sixth one as well, is bound by the Spirit and is faith-driven. Is bound by the Spirit and is faith-driven. I want you to key into that word bound. Your translation might say constrained, but it's, it's getting at this picture that Paul wants us to get. Paul wants us to get this picture that being bound is actually can be a good thing. Because here's what, in, other, in, in, in some of his teaching, in Romans in particular, he talks about how we're always slaves. We're, all, we're always bondservants. But to what? He says, because of our sin nature, we have been born bound to sin and to unrighteousness. So I want you to imagine the picture he wants us to get is that we're slaves. We, we are bound. We are shackled at feet and ankle and wrist. We are shackled to something or someone. And he says, because of our sin nature, we are bound, we are born bound to sin, to unrighteousness. And so what Jesus offers us is that we are born, reborn into him through faith in him and through his bloodshed for us and his sacrifice and the renewing of the heart that he gives through faith in him, he sets us free so we are no longer bound, which is true. But it's like I shared on Easter, if you were with us a few weeks ago, that we have a very misunderstood perception of what freedom really is. Because we think that freedom is ultimately not being bound in any way, which is natural to think that. But what God teaches us in the word is he says, no, you're freed from the old shackles so that you can be bound once again to righteousness. So that you can be bound to me. In Romans chapter five and six, this is what Paul lays out. He says that, yes, we're no longer bound to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. We're bound to Jesus. The word he also uses is that we're united to Christ. We are now one with him so that true freedom the true freedom that we long for is actually only found in being bound to Christ so that he leads us in the freedom for which we were created because we were made by him and for him. And so we're bound to him. And so what Paul says is this. He says, I'm bound by the Holy Spirit. And what is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? What does he do? Well, he does a lot of things. He sanctifies us, he helps us, he comforts us. But one of the things that he does is this, and some of you have heard me say this enough to where you're like, how often are you gonna say this? And my answer is, I might say it every sermon. So just bear with me. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is this. The Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit, when we are bound by the Spirit, we go places we normally wouldn't go. We do things we normally wouldn't do. We say things we normally wouldn't say. We risk things we normally wouldn't risk. We, in other words, because we're bound by the Spirit, we are full of faith to follow him wherever he leads. We are faith-driven people. Christ-exalting, poured-out people are bound by the Holy Spirit to follow him by faith wherever he leads. Which means I'm gonna go do, say, and risk things that I normally wouldn't. But this time, where previously I would have done that because sin has control of me, now I'm doing it because Christ has control of me. And before where it was to the glory of self, now it's to the glory of God. And so we're bound by the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says. He says, he says I don't know what's gonna come next. Whatever happens there, I don't know, but I just know that I'm gonna go wherever he leads me. And then he says, here's what I do know, verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, Imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
I don't know, I don't know much. I don't know what, what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm not sure where God is leading. I'm going to be bound to the Holy Spirit such that he's going to lead me to go say, do, and risk things that I normally wouldn't. And I'm going to follow him because he's got what he has for me is better than anything that this world would have for me. Uh, but I, I do know this. I do know because I'm going to pr- not shrink back in declaring and testifying and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be hardship. It will be hard. My life will be in danger. The seventh thing I want you to see is that the Christ-exalting, poured-out life is expected of hardship. We're not surprised by it. You know, we, we'll talk about briefly here in just a moment. He, he warns the Ephesian church about the wolves that are to come in the church. What that basically means is they're going to preach a gospel unlike what I've preached to you, repentance and faith. And there's been gospels, false gospels that have circulated among the church for centuries and centuries and centuries. But one of those that's been more recent teaches that uh, if you're united to Christ, then you actually pursue Christ so that everything in your life gets better. So that you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And that's what Christ gives you. And he may have that as a calling for your life, but it's not a promise. In fact, when God does promise things, he typically in his scripture is promising that when you follow Jesus, expect hardship. Why? Is that because God's cruel? No. It's because he actually loves us more than we could ever imagine. And he knows that it's in the wilderness of life where he strips away all the attachments that we have to the world, where we have all these misaligned purposes and things that we think life is about. He'll strip those away in the midst of the hardships so that we can actually begin to see and love him for who he is. That he is the one that truly satisfies the heart that is constantly longing and hungering for what only he can give. And so he purposefully leads us into hardship and we should expect it. Eighth, the Christ exalting poured out life is able to reposition what is precious. Look what he says in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The reason Paul is able to be bound by the Holy Spirit, the reason Paul is able to be faith-driven, the reason Paul is able to say, look, if hardships come, then so be it, is because he has repositioned what is ultimately most precious. And it's not his own life. Now, this is not foolish, irresponsible throwing away of his life. It's not, it's not valuing, it's not him Uh, not valuing his life. He values his life. He knows that life is a gift from God. He knows that life is precious, but he also knows this, that compared to the calling that God has given every follower of Jesus, it's not as precious as what we hold within us, which is Christ himself. That ultimately we are not the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Ultimately, Jesus is the one for whom our heart beats such that that we have set with him and we have known him so that we treasure him more than anything else and the calling that he's placed upon our lives. Now, all of us are called to different callings occupationally. But when it comes to this one overarching calling upon the believer's life, we all have the same calling, which is the very same thing that Paul said here. It's to proclaim the grace of God in the in the face of Jesus, 
the glory of God in the face of Jesus, is to tell people and make disciples in word and in deed wherever we go and to be able to stand before God one day when he's when we're standing before him and we're given an account for our lives to say, look, it's not about what I did or didn't do because I'm in because of the finished work of Jesus, but you gave me a calling and the calling was to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed wherever I go. And I, I just say, look, it was broken. It was messed up. It was not good. I messed it up all the time. I fell flat on my face often, but man, that was the goal. That was the precious desire of my heart. It's what I longed for more than anything else. This is what Paul is saying when he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. Would you be able to stand before God right now and say, look, I have finished the course to which you have called me on that day? A few more that we'll hit quickly. Christ exalting, poured out life, is alert, is, I'm sorry, is carefully attentive to the church and the gospel. I'll just mention this one, you can read it more, but this is where he lays out that there will be wolves that come among you, and we're to be good shepherds protecting the gospel and the church. 10, is, is alert and devoted to the word of God, that God's word is preeminent in our lives, that we sit under its authority, that we study its brilliance, and that we worship the one that it's all about. That all of it is pointing to the majesty of the Lord and that we are alert and devoted to his word. 11, the Christ-exalting poured out life is given to hard work and to helping the weak. This is literally hard work in the marketplace. Wherever God's called you to work with your hands, with your mind, wherever you are, where you are called to work in the home, that we work hard as unto the Lord. Paul, Paul was a tent maker. And although he would spend a portion of his days preaching and teaching, he spent a big, big portion of his days working as well, bringing the glory of God to bear in the marketplace in the ways that he used his hands to create and to make to the glory of God. And you better believe that while he was creating and making to the glory of God and sustaining himself and those with him, he was also proclaiming the goodness of Christ in that context. May we work hard so that we can give generously to the weak among us. Lastly, verse, uh, the 12th one here, the Christ-exalting poured out life is evidenced by intimacy. It's evidenced by intimacy. When Paul goes to leave these brothers and sisters, they are weeping together. They are hugging, embracing. They are kissing each other on the cheek. They are showing deep affection for one another. Why? because they've done life together. Because they've poured out each other's lives. It's not just Paul, it's the whole body. They've poured out their lives into one another so that yes, they have intimacy with God together, but they ultimately have intimacy with one another. We want this to, that, that to be true of this church, of you. And it can't be that way of, at the macro level, when you think about the number of people who attend and worship here, but it certainly can be at the micro level. That we have the intimacy of Christ coursing through our veins vertically, but we also have it horizontally with one another. Sharing life together, pouring out our lives. 
Let me close with this. Do you ultimately want a Tom and Giselle life or a Carl and Sherry life? Now, Tom and Giselle, I probably don't even have to say last name Brady. Many of you, if not all of us, knew immediately who that was. Even if you don't follow football, you know Tom Brady's won a lot of championships. And Tom, I'm not the judge of his heart, only God knows the heart, but just based on an interview he did many years ago, I don't know if things have changed since then, hopefully they have, but he said in an interview, he said, I've gotten everything this world can give, basically. He said, I've, I've gotten it all, I've attained it all. I've gotten the Super Bowl, I've gotten the girl, I've gotten the money, I've gotten the fame, I've gotten all of it. He said, I just can't stop thinking that there has to be more. And the man interviewing him said, well, what do you think it is? What is the more, what's, what's out there? And, and Tom's answer was, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. The point being, as Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his own soul? Now, Tom and Giselle, the world will remember those names, perhaps even for generations to come. Does heaven know their names? Now, Carl and Sherry, some of you know those names because you're a perimeter family. But outside of perimeter, by and large, those are not names that are gonna be remembered by the world. But let me tell you who Carl and Sherry Wilhelm are. They're faithful members of this church for many decades now. Carl's a longtime elder in the church. And Sherry and Carl both have poured out their lives for the sake of the kingdom. Now, you may not know this, but there's a fair chance. There's a fair chance that you're even sitting here today because of their ministry. Because they influenced someone with the gospel who influenced someone with the gospel who influenced someone who influenced someone who influenced someone who influenced you. That is a fair chance because the, this brother and sister have prayed and they have sown the seeds of the gospel and they have made disciples and they have poured out and they have poured out and they have poured out such that many, countless, will stand before the throne one day and say, I know Jesus because of those people and no one knows me, and the world won't be talking about me, but heaven rejoices over me because of the poured out lives of Carl and Sherry Wilhelm. And Carl now is at the end of life. He's battling the final stages of Parkinson's. And I was with him recently. You know what he was talking to me about? How can we reach the world for Jesus? He said, if my legs would let, let me, I would still go to my neighbors and I would just knock on doors and I would just say, how can I pray for you? And can I share the good news of Jesus with you? He said, oh, how I wish I could do that. And I'll tell you this, that Carl is, is not a perfect man, but he is a praying man. And on his last breath, I have no doubt, on his last breath, he will be praying for the people that he's been praying for. Whoever's on his prayer list at that moment, that'll be what he's doing at his last breath. The world will not know Carl Wilhelm. The world will not know Sherry Wilhelm. But heaven does. What kind of life do you want? What's most precious to you? Father, would you be most precious to us? Jesus, would you be most precious to us? Holy Spirit, would you bind us that we would be constrained by you to go, to do, to say, to risk things that we normally wouldn't because you, you are controlling every step of our lives because we're in full surrender to you. And where you go, we will follow and we will make much of you we will honor you. And ultimately, God, our prayer is not that you'd make us more like Paul. 
Our prayer is ultimately that you make us more like you, Jesus, because you are the one who poured out your life. You are the one who came not to, not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. And then you call us to do the same. So may we do it. Unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.